podcast is brought to you by Excess Energy Drinks and Excess Sports Nutrition exclusively from Amway. Excess offers a collection of active and adventure products to help you energize, hydrate, strengthen, and recover. Follow us on Instagram at Excess Nation. It's inside the Amway Coaches Poll from USA Today Sports, the college football podcast that gives fans the inside scoop on who's moving up, who's moving down, and what's happening with all the big news of the week. Dan Wolken and Paul Meyerberg will take you through this week's poll, interview coaches, and break down the sport like nobody else, starting now. Welcome into the Inside the Amway Coaches Poll podcast presented by USA Today Sports. I am Dan Walken alongside Paul Meyerberg. Later in the show, we're going to have Michigan State coach Mel Tucker joining us to talk about the start of the Big Ten season, what his team is doing now that they have a month to prepare for their season. But, Paul, it was a massive weekend of college football, a transformative weekend, a weekend that felt wonderfully normal and insane yeah that was awesome look like a weekend where you can give georgia a hard time and then lsu gets upset and you know texas needs overtime to win in lubbock uh you know pittsburgh is somehow three and oh by the skin of their teeth it just, yeah it felt awesome so it was the first weekend where you had a full slate or close to it and, and, it, and it really delivered All right, well, let's get to the new poll first, and then we'll break down some of what happened over the weekend. Um, New poll, Amway Coaches poll coming out on Sunday. Clemson stays at number one. Alabama moves up to number two. Florida, number three. Georgia, number four. Uh, The SEC finally playing. They are shaken up. Uh, But let's talk about a team that, that fell precipitously in the poll, and that is your defending national champion, LSU. LSU down to number 17. They were number five last week. They get beat at home by Mississippi State, 44 to 34. It was maybe in retrospect, Paul, not a result that um, should have been overly surprising. I mean, LSU, we talked about it before, loses everybody, loses their best coaches, their best players, Derek Stingley Jr. is in the hospital the night before the game with some type of illness that apparently is not COVID. And they just basically ran up against a team that did whatever they wanted. How much of that was LSU and how much of it was Mike Leach and Mississippi State? Yeah, I don't want to discredit Mike Leach or Mississippi State. I mean, this is like a sort of debut that you couldn't have seen come from Mississippi State. I don't think you can put into words what it means for the program and for this new staff, but I think it's a lot about LSU for the reasons you mentioned. I mean, all the losses that we kind of, we didn't ignore, but we kind of overlooked um, changes on both sides of the ball. I mean, the change at quarterback alone is dramatic. Um, Bo Pelini, your new defensive coordinator, giving up record setting totals. Doesn't surprise me whatsoever. Um, But yeah, this is an LSU loss. That's the story more than the Mississippi state win. And I think what's interesting moving forward is, which team is more likely to keep this up. And I still think it's more likely that LSU rebounds and is a New Year's Six factor in December than it is that Mississippi State somehow in his first season under Mike Leach, they go seven and three. That seems less likely. Well, look, I think part of the problem with the narrative around Mike Leach and Mississippi State is this whole idea that, boy, Mike Leach is proving proving the, the haters wrong and that the air raid can work in the SEC. 
I mean, this is ridiculous. The air raid has been in the SEC before. It was there. Mike Leach has been in the SEC before. Like we've seen, we've seen this movie, and we know it can work. The, but it, it can only work up to a point. At least it's only been proven to work up to a point. Um, Mike Leach and Mississippi State are going to be a massive pain in the ass for everybody in that mm-hmm. league. No one is going to enjoy playing them. The question is whether week after week uh, they can do it or if it's going to be like Leach at Washington State where you're going to win some games and you're going to score some points. But when you run up against the really good teams in your league, your, your offense will, will probably not be as effective. I mean, I, I think there's a perfect storm aspect to this that is going to make the Mississippi State performance look – better than than maybe it really was having said that they did get 630 something passing yards (laughs) right so you can't overlook that but a you're right that uh you know leach brought the air raid to the sec in the 90s so it's been around um they're going to be a problem they're going to be a problem in terms of schematically preparing for them at least in year one they're going to be an issue for teams they're going to put up a bunch of yards put up a bunch of points um, and that's fine. I mean, I don't think you're expecting Mike Leach to win a national championship, even after beating LSU. But um, what I'm taken by more than anything is my impression was that this year for Mississippi State, despite having a bunch of talented guys, would be much more like year one at Washington State than his year one at Texas Tech, meaning that it would take time, um, conference-only schedule. They'd go three and seven, maybe four and six. It'd be a struggle, but they'd build towards 2021. So I guess I'm surprised, if anything, by, by the fact that they might be a little bit better right away than we thought. But it's going to be – they're going to be good. I mean, you say what you want about Leach. He's going to have a winning team out there. It's just a matter of what degree of success he's going to have compared to his two previous stops. It's going to be real interesting with LSU because I, I did some research into it earlier this morning. If you go back over the last year, Ed Orgeron has made a series of sort of passive-aggressive – criticisms of Dave Aranda, his defensive coordinator from last year. Uh, On September 15th, Ed Orgeron told the LSU media that their defense this year was was better than at any point last season. And look, LSU had their struggles on defense last season for a time, but by the end of the year in the playoff, like that was a very, very good defense. Yeah, I mean, look at OU and Clemson. Absolutely. And so the – I think the the idea that that this defense was going to be better than last season, um, it's pretty foolish. And I think it's rooted in, you know, sort of a personal distaste for Aranda. I mean, there, you cannot find two more opposite personalities than Ed yeah. Orgeron and Aranda. And, and also yeah. let me – and also just let me say this. Um, Orgeron's a defensive line coach. And Aranda's scheme was not based around defensive linemen – it was overpowering the line of scrimmage. Um, you know, it was a three, four, uh, they played some different, different uh, ways, but it was, it was base three, four and uh, a lot of, you know, linebackers and disguises and Ed Orgeron just wants to beat you over the head. And it just, so there was a little bit of a, not just a personality conflict there, but, but a style conflict that I actually think sort of graded on Orgeron. And, you know, maybe it's a little bit of be careful what you ask for. Yeah, that's a really good point about the, the schematics. I mean, you knew the personality didn't mesh well on either side, you know, and you, and you knew that from a, from a mile away. But it's interesting to think that by hiring Bellini to bring in a 4-3 base defensive guy who who fits into what Orgeron wants schematically, maybe you're not playing to what you need to play with in the SEC. And look, I mean, 
I was at a snowy game in Madison, like what, four or five years ago, whenever he was the coach, when Melvin Gordon ran for 460 yards against Nebraska. Um, so after watching that performance, aware that they were going to run the ball every time and, and a Pelini defense still couldn't stop it. I'm not overly optimistic of, of his ability to really do this thing anymore. Um, so I'm not surprised, like I said, that, that Costello threw for 660 yards or whatever. Um, the key is, you know, if you bring Stingley back, how much of a difference does it make? Probably a lot. But I just don't – I just look at this Louisiana State team. I just don't know why, um, in hindsight, we were thinking that they could win this thing. Well, and the other thing is they didn't run the ball at all against Mississippi State. And and Miles Brennan was fairly unimpressive. Like, I, I just look at this LSU team, and, and I, I think – Look, we give the defending national championships the benefit of the doubt. Uh, that's why they were ranked where they were ranked. But when you take a second look at this team, having now seen them play, this looks much more like a rebuild than a reload. So, yeah. Well, what's the what's and the last thing I'll say about LSU? What's the baseline? I mean, it's one game. They got nine more to go. What's the baseline? Six and well, five and five theoretically, right? Because they got four ranked teams on the schedule still. Yeah, I mean, they could lose a lot of those games, uh, no doubt. Um, now, they may get better, too, but they, they have a long way to go. The other team that made a big tumble out of the uh, top ten was Oklahoma. Oklahoma came into their game against Kansas State ranked number three. They were three touchdown favorites. Kansas State had, uh, I believe, eight contributors, major contributors out of the game, and – you know, they've been dealing with COVID issues all along. And Oklahoma's playing at home. They have a big lead late third quarter, and you think they're going to cruise through. And then all of a sudden, Kansas State scores 17 unanswered points in the fourth quarter, and they win. And Oklahoma is now number 16. And, look, I think if you're an Oklahoma fan, you just kind of feel like, it's it's a recurring nightmare a little bit. I mean, they're obviously a great program. They've won the Big 12 several times in a row. They make the college football playoff. But if you're an Oklahoma fan, how can you just have any confidence that you are actually making progress as a program when you are now in year four and you are still seeing this defense look lost when, when it matters? Yeah, I mean, it has to be a personnel situation here. It can't be schematics. It has to be a personnel problem, whether how they're recruiting or how they're developing. Um, paid a lot of money to hire Alex Grinch, and the results have been mediocre, to be quite honest. So I don't know if it's X's and O's. It seems unlikely when you look at four- or five-year trend. But, yeah, I, I think the painful part for OU fans is, I mean, specifically 2020, and you should talk about this because you wrote this yesterday, losing at this point, September 26th, um, it just feels different than losses in the past in the, in under this weird condition, this different environment of the season. So that's obviously confusing, but also at the same time, like, what are you expecting now? I mean, this happens every single year, every single year, it sends you off into the verge of the playoff. You fight your way back, you get killed in the semis, like you're achieving this success, but it doesn't feel successful because it feels predictable. Yeah, Oklahoma's had one of these every single year, whether it's Kansas State or it's Iowa State. You know, it's somebody like that who just sort of inexplicably wins, or, or Texas a few years ago when Texas wasn't very good. And they just have this sort of inexplicable way of, of 
just not looking like an elite team that one week. And then they'll figure things out and, and they'll, they'll win games. They'll string together wins and they'll, they'll work their way back up the rankings. But it, it does start to feel a little bit old because it's the same problem over and over again. And look, their offense could have done something in the fourth quarter to stop the tide. Uh, they didn't score and that's a problem. They're also playing a guy who's a first year starter in Spencer Rattler. Um, I would say watching them yesterday, their wide receiver talent has dipped. I mean, there's no CD lambs out there. Uh, no, their offensive talent overall is less dynamic relative to the recent past, but you yeah. know, they'll develop guys. I'm not sure. worried about the offense, but you know, no, it's a, it's a, a trend. And, and, yeah. and look, um, I'm not going to write anyone out of the playoff right now, but the big 12 is in a, in a real pickle uh, because we've seen the bad teams in the big 12 and they are bad. They are really bad. And the good teams are just kind of okay. And look, there was a time on Saturday where it looked like Oklahoma and Texas were both going to go down. Uh, Texas ends up somehow miraculously pulling out a win in Lubbock. They were down 15 with just over three minutes to go. Uh, Some questionable strategic decisions by Texas Tech. Uh, Texas is able to get a couple scores and an onside kick, and and they win the game in overtime. Uh, Texas stays at number nine in the Amway coaches poll, which is where they were last week. They are two and O. So if you just take those facts, everything seems okay. But if you actually look at what happened on the field, I have major concerns about Texas and you couple that with the concerns we now are talking about with Oklahoma and you've got a league in the big 12 that this is just going to be a year where I don't see anyone emerging. Like they're all just going to beat up on each other. assuming that game yesterday was not an outlier, Texas is going to take losses. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. Is this the part where we talk about Florida state again? Can we do that? Or should we just not? I feel like. So you probably should jump straight over Texas and go to Florida state. Uh, You know, Texas, like you, you could have it at any, this could be any year since 2010. You just said Texas. I'm just not sure if you can say that Texas is going to be blank, good, bad, whatever. This feels very, very familiar to me. Unfamiliar territory is Miami in the top 10. But I think this is more like we could say, oh, great, Miami, they look great. Everyone knows that. I think everyone wants to hear your thoughts about Florida State. Okay, well, let's just just address this from a poll standpoint. Uh, Miami is the biggest riser in this week's Amway Coaches poll. Up to number eight at 3-0. They were number 14 last week. And there is no doubt Miami looks really good. I mean, what, what they've been able to do with De'Ara King at quarterback and Rhett Lashley designing that offense is, is spectacular. Um, and they absolutely manhandled Florida State in a way that they probably never have manhandled Florida State. Like, it doesn't really matter, like, what era we're talking about or uh, what team. They've obviously both been good. They've both been bad. But that game is always sort of – close if you're Miami and and you're on the upper end of it. Um, This one was not close. Like I I went and looked it up. Uh, They're up 38 to three at halftime. That, that is a a record halftime score in that, in that rivalry. Uh, There have been bigger blowouts uh, in terms of just raw point differential. If you go back in that series, but uh, this was utter domination and embarrassment from Florida state. Um, I don't know where exactly to place all of the blame, but at some point you can't just absolve Mike Norvell completely. I mean, this looks like a Florida State team that just does not buy in whatsoever to what they're doing right now. 
Well, he said you can, I take the blame, right? Last night. Well, that's what coaches um, are supposed to say. Yeah, I know. But you weren't even there, Mike. I mean, you were, you were at home. Um, I think uh, you can go back the last couple of years. This period of embarrassment includes Jimbo's last year. So we're going Jimbo's last year, both those Taggart years. And right now, this is the low point. Like it hasn't been worse than this. It never got worse than this. It really has never been worse. Yeah. No. And there was a point, like you said, it was 38-3 at halftime. There was a point like in the second quarter when it was building to that, when I was like, they honestly could score 70 points. Like if Miami really wanted to, and I think they did, but if they really kept that energy level up, they could have scored 70 against Florida State. It was basically Miami Bethune or Miami, Florida, A&M. They could have picked the score. Um, so yeah, no, that, that well, game was played. Like if you take the uniforms off Florida State and, and gave them to Florida A&M, you could not have told the difference. Not at all. Yeah, and some of that has to do with the fact that their coach wasn't on the sidelines, but there's deeper-seated issues that shoot holes in any theory about a quick turnaround under Norvell. I think this is, this is a process. And 52-10 to Miami, losing to Georgia Tech 16-13. Um, it's, it's, it can't get worse than Saturday, but it's, I don't think it's going to get better for, for quite a while for Florida State. Yeah, I, I think we all now know that they've got just a very, very, very long way to go. Um, another team that debuted, and frankly, I was not impressed with, is Texas A&M. Texas A&M, yeah. who is number 13 this week, uh, down slightly from number 11 last week. Of course, uh, this week, there's uh, some abnormalities with the Big Ten teams. Uh, because Ohio State was number 10 last week. They're number six this week. Penn State was 13 last week, 10 this week. Those teams have not played, of course. So we're going to see this as we go on. But um, And, look, A&M may end up being the 13th best team in the country. But uh, they did not have Vanderbilt put away until the final two minutes. And they were 31-point favorites. How concerned should A&M be about just like sort of a pretty juiceless performance uh, they just got nothing going. Yeah, yeah, that was really disappointing. I think there's a lot of first game, terrible offseason, bad timing situation going on there. I mean, I think if they played another 10 times, I don't think you'd see another five-point win for a and um, So there's an aspect of it, and I don't think we should overlook that entirely. But you, you, you said the right word. I think it was the lack of energy from A&M that was the most frustrating. And certainly if you're an A&M fan watching that team, you're like looking at your watch, like, Hey, let's go, let's go, let's go. Um, so they did not get a performance out of Kellen Mom That's good enough to beat the best teams in the West. They were energetic enough to put away a Vanderbilt team that at best is like number 13 in the 14 team SEC. So I think A&M at this point is overranked at 13. I think if you look at a few teams below them, Cincinnati's two and O just beat army. They should be ahead of them. I Very think Oklahoma State's – yeah, great win. I think Oklahoma State beating West Virginia after struggling with Tulsa was more impressive than that. I even think Tennessee winning on the road against South Carolina, again, a team that Tennessee wasn't quite 100% consistent, but I think that wins better than what A&M showed. So there's a little bit of uh, reputation involved with A&M at 13. I, I, they didn't show that to me at all. Well, they better get it together because they got to play Alabama next week. Yeah, and that's going to that's gonna get bad. I, we could talk briefly about Alabama who's number two. The final score is 38-19 against Missouri. That's with a lot of garbage points. I thought sure. Alabama's first teamers were, they were, were great. on point, on yeah. point, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about Alabama, but there's really not much to talk about other than that is what you expect. That is the quality you expect from Alabama. And 
you know, I just never really was worried about Mac Jones and I'm not going to be worried about Mac Jones. He is perfectly capable of running that offense and they have enough good players. He is going to be responsible. He's not going to make big mistakes. He's going to get the ball to, you know, guys like Jalen Waddle and Najee Harris. And like, I think they're going to be rolling. Yeah. And they've got an interesting, their QB situation in Florida is not quite similar, but there's, there's some similarities there. I mean, both have entrenched older starters, Mac Jones and Cal Trask. Both have young QBs they want to play, Bryce Young and Emory Jones. He saw Jones play quite a bit for Florida against Ole Miss and, and you know, played worse than Trask, obviously. But that situation, that dynamic is interesting. I think both of those coaches are better enough to handle it. But um, interesting to see Mac Jones start so well and, and quiet some of the Bryce Young calls, at least from the start. You said that A&M was overranked at 13 is Georgia overranked at number four? They slipped from three to four this week because Florida jumped them. But Georgia, even though the final score against Arkansas looks normal, it looks like it's probably supposed to look, um, that game was – that was a close game for about two and a half quarters. And eventually Georgia – it's just a too big of a talent gap there, and, and it was off to the races. But um, – Georgia had to bench Dwan Mathis and, and play Stetson Bennett at quarterback. Um, their, their defense was a little bit here and there making mistakes. Um, the, it says 37-10 on paper, but if you watch that game, that did not feel like, boy, great performance from Georgia. That felt like, man, they uh, could be in some trouble next week against Auburn. Yeah, that was, that was not great. 7-5 at halftime against Arkansas. Not good. Um, yeah, they're overranked at number four. Um, again, like we said this last week, if you were, if you're going to rank Ohio state, okay, have them at number two or number three or number one, it doesn't make any sense to rank Ohio state, like anywhere outside of the top three, they are obviously a top three team in the country. So in that sense, Georgia's overranked by at least one spot, but you mentioned Auburn, um, not the prettiest. I think there was a point before Terry Wilson fumbled for Kentucky. Auburn took over and kind of put the game away where Kentucky had a legitimate shot. I think Auburn's win against Kentucky outside of Mississippi State was the best win of any team in the SEC because Kentucky showed to me why they're probably borderline top 25, good on both lines, not quite explosive enough on offense to be a real threat in the East, but that's a really good win for Auburn. And I think they played a whole lot better than Georgia, even though Auburn struggled running the football and got bailed out by a bunch of turnovers. I would put Auburn ahead of Georgia at this point. One team I do want to give a little bit of a shout-out to is Virginia Tech. At uh, number 24, exactly where they were last week, I picked them to lose to NC State, and uh, I was wrong, wrong, wrong. They had no problem with NC State. It was 45-24. And the reason you have to give some props to Virginia Tech here is, I mean, they've had about as bad of a run-up to the season as anybody. They've just had guys out at every single practice. They had 20-something guys out of the game due to, you know, COVID and contact tracing. They didn't have Hendon Hooker, their quarterback. And so just kind of given everything, I think that was a very, very solid effort. I, I did not watch much of that game, but uh, that is a, a good and necessary win to just sort of relieve a little bit of the tension. So. Yeah, let's also remember that they didn't have their defensive coordinator, uh, Justin Hamilton, yeah. who uh, couldn't coach in the game due to COVID. So – if you don't have like, let's see, 25 guys of a roster, it's a significant part of a college football yes. roster. 
and without your defensive coordinator. Um, that's pretty impressive. That is a undermanned shorthanded win for Virginia tech. So I wasn't like that bullish on him, honestly, going into the season, but that, that win helps change perception. Let me just ask you one more thing before we get to Mel Tucker, as you watch the games, especially in the sec, where we're used to seeing these crazy environments and packed houses and all the pageantry, just as a TV viewer, did you feel like college football was missing anything yesterday without, without the fans? No. I didn't either. Um, I, know, I, I thought it was yeah. fine. Yeah. I know it obviously is missing. I mean, sure. we can all say it. it obviously is like, if you're there, you're in the press box. Like for example, one moment that did stand out was during that uh, Virginia tech game when an NC state player got hurt. And thankfully I think he's fine. I saw on Twitter this morning, but he needed the cart. He needed an ambulance and like, just dead silence. And I saw a video on Twitter of the ambulance backing up beep, beep, beep. And like, you could really tell then, okay, this is, this is odd, super weird, but just in general, you're watching Alabama, Missouri, um, Missouri crowd would have cleared out in the fourth quarter anyway. I mean, it all felt normal to me as a viewer. So I think it's a good sign. I'd be interested in hearing from our listeners who are watching at home and watched a bunch of games. If they felt like that it was missing, it, it really wasn't from my perception. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, Great college football Saturday. Uh, Hopefully we get several more like it. All right, uh, stay with us. We'll have a conversation coming up with Michigan State coach Mel Tucker. Inside the Amway Coaches Poll from USA Today Sports. Today's athletes and coaches look for any edge they can find. Go to the edge and beyond with excess muscle multiplier exclusively from Amway. A new way to fuel your muscles containing the only essential amino acid blend patented to help build lean muscle when used in combination with regular strength training and a healthy diet. Not only is this a superior blend of EAAs, it is naturally flavored and free of dairy, sugar, gluten, and GMOs. Use excess muscle multiplier every day and especially before, during, or after a workout to go beyond the edge. Follow us on Instagram at XSNation to experience more. And stay tuned after the podcast to learn about the latest cutting-edge essential amino acid technology and how it's being used with professional mountain biker Mark Matthews. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now, back to Inside the Amway Coaches Poll with Dan Wolken and Paul Meyerberg. Pleased to be joined on the Inside the Amway Coaches Poll podcast by a coach in his first year at Michigan State. It is Mel Tucker. Mel, thanks for coming on this week. Yeah, thanks thanks for having me on. No, really appreciate you being here. Obviously, it has been a bit of a saga for the Big Ten and for your program over the last uh, several months. You didn't know if you were going to play this fall. Uh, Then you thought you were going to play in the spring, and now you are getting ready for uh, a season opener that, that you can see on the schedule and feel against Rutgers on October 24th. Um, you've still got almost a month until that opener. What are you doing right now with your team? And how far behind were you in terms of just readiness for practice uh, with the fact that, that your guys had no idea whether they were going to play or not? Yeah, uh, we we're practicing right now. I mean, we're, we're in shoulder pads. I mean, I'm sorry, we're in spider pads, which is a, uh, a lesser form of shoulder pad and helmets. And we're just conducting our, our normal practices just like we would in camp. The only difference is that our guys are in school. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, we're able to work around that. It's just really not been an issue. Our players are actually in better shape now than they were when we started camp the first time before the postponement. Or when, it, when the season was postponed, we put our players right back in the weight room to run and lift, and they got five weeks of intense training with our strength and conditioning coaches. So when we got the green light to start back up again, um, you know, we were, we were, we were ready to go. You, you mentioned your voice was a little hoarse uh, coming on. H- how about your readiness for practice? Has that been a little hard for, uh, for you with all the uh, yelling you've had to do the first couple of weeks? <laughs> well, I, I only raised my voice in enthusiasm. So we just got an enthusiastic bunch out there. And, uh, but usually, uh, I mean, this is going on 24 years for, for me, the, the beginning of the off-season conditioning program, the beginning of spring ball, in the beginning of fall camp, I usually lose my voice for that first week and a half or so. <laughs> so you've got, like like Dan said, that month or so until you, until you kick off. You haven't been able to go full contact. Do you have any worries that you won't be able to ramp up physicality to, to match the season, or do you think you have more than enough time? Yeah, I, I'm not worried about that as much. Uh, we'll be able to go full pads on the, on the 30th, on, on Wednesday, next Wednesday, I believe. And, uh, you know, we'll uh, – you know, we're not going to go from, from uh, spiders and helmets to full scrimmage. You know, we're going to, you know, we're going to kind of ramp our guys up you know, on our own. That's fun of conditioning and, and those types of things. We like to stay off the ground when we practice, kind of like the NFL. And so, uh, but we will have some scrimmage time where we'll go full go. But uh, we're, we're going to make sure that we do it in a way that, that uh, that's in uh, progression a contact progression uh, with our players. Mel, you guys have had a little bit of an advantage in terms of being able to watch other teams playing for a few weeks, maybe noticing some trends. It seems that that one of the big themes that's emerged early in the season is special teams play has been probably uh, a little bit scratchy. I mean, the football's probably been sloppy overall, but special teams has been a a big area, I think, where we've seen maybe that that people have not devoted as much time or had as much time in practice. Are there things you've noticed from other games that we're watching right now, you know, that maybe you can apply to how you're trying to prepare to get your team in the best place possible to play in a month? Yeah, it really kind of reminds me of how you see a lot of uh, a lot of football games early in seasons, you know, over the years especially when you look at maybe like a preseason game, early preseason game in the NFL, you know, you get, uh, you know, you get a lot of penalties, you know, things like that, uh, you know, missed assignments. You know, sometimes the special teams are just not, they're just not as sharp as they need to be. And I'm kind of seeing the same, uh, similar things now. So we're really putting a a heavy emphasis on technique and fundamentals on uh, attention, detail, on discipline. And we, um, uh, from the beginning of COVID, when we started our Zoom calls, and we've had many, many, many of those, that we were installing our offenses and defensive schemes. Uh, we've also uh, we also uh, dedicated time to special teams as well, and so um, we look at it as the three phases: offense, defense, and special teams working together, playing complementary football. And so, um, you know, we, we've done everything that, that, that we've can so far to make sure that our special teams get just as much attention as our offensive defense. Well, if you, when you conduct a practice, 
even though you're not doing full contact, are you separating by position? Like you're, you're keeping distance between positional groups and having fewer interactions between those groups? Because I'm curious if the special teams issues for a lot of teams are the fact that they're not bringing all the guys together, mixing together your alignment and your DBs, your skill guys and your big guys to practice those drills because they're separating during practice. Does that make any sense? Are you, are you doing that where you're bringing everyone together to practice those drills? Yes, we're practicing uh, like we normally would practice. Okay. Um, when our when our players uh, when our players are on the sideline and they're not um, and they're not involved in a drill, then then we we socially distance them, um, and then you know we have on a form of a you know we have a helmet with a mask on it, or uh, if the player doesn't have his helmet on, then he'll pull up his gator. And so we're, you know, we're doing, we're doing all of those types of things and social distancing, you know, when we're not taking reps. And, but other than that, you know, we're playing and lining up like you have to, to get ready to play a game. Mel, you are taking over a program that has had a lot of success over the last a decade and a half under Mark D'Antonio. Uh, the last couple of years maybe have been a little bit uh, difficult for the program. What was your assessment when you took over of just kind of what you're inheriting and, and where you need to take Michigan State uh, to get back to the level that the fans have, have come to expect there? Yeah, Mark, Mark D'Antonio did a great job uh, here over, I think you might have been here 13 years and and uh, I worked with Mark for five years. I worked with him two years here. And initially when I got into coaching as a graduate assistant, and then I worked with him for three with uh, three years at Ohio State where we won a, we won a national championship there. Um, you know, what I, what I found is he's, he's uh, there's a lot of great kids here, you know, really high character guys that, you know, understand, you know, work ethic and things like that. And they can appreciate uh, you know what we're doing in, in our shifting culture, and just a sense of urgency that we bring. Um, you know, every day, and the, the the intensity. You know how we how we're doing things differently in the weight room, and just you know our coaching style and our and the schemes that we bring with it. Uh, the players are embracing that, um, and they're buying into it. Um, I think they 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 trust it. We know. We're, we know what we're doing. We've demonstrated that to them, uh, you know, initially, and, you know, all the way through COVID. We're very organized in, um, in our approach, and, and then they know that we have a process. We're a process-driven program, and our players, um, I believe they buy into that. Yeah, Mel, a lot's been made for how first-year coaches will handle this you know, not having the, the spring and the summer, a normal fall camp to install all their X's and O's. Um, I don't know whether that's going to be a big deal or not. I guess we'll know in a month or two. But for you, in terms of it being a new coach and building relationships with your team, how difficult has that been when you spent a lot of the time apart? And, and what do you think you've done as a staff to make those connections in a really weird six or seven months? Yes, that's probably been the most challenging. That's a great question because, you know, it's not only uh, connected with the with the players, it's also connected with the staff as well. I mean, I got new coaching staff. Some some of the coaches I haven't worked with before, you know. But we had to be very intentional and deliberate about how we connect with our players. We talked, you know, early on, even before COVID, we talked about connection. And so um, we did, we worked a, a lot, you know, on Zoom 
connected with better players, but just not talking about X's and O's. When we had those calls, we would talk about things outside of football. We did some, we did a lot of goal setting, you know, like by position, um, and that that helped uh, quite a bit. And uh, you know, just trying to get to know each other as people. Then we also had a had a, a series of speakers, a, a, a wide range of speakers to try to help connect with our players. You know, whether it was Gretchen Whitmer or Joe Taylor, state representative, talking about um, voter registration, or we had someone come in and about, talk about financial literacy. We had someone come in, a, a mental health practitioner, and come in and talk about mental health. We partnered with the Rise and and uh, the Secretary of State's office on some some uh, civic engagement uh, things, and so just uh, and we we've also had uh, eight. Uh, Zoom parent uh, par meetings, where you know our our coaching staff, our medical staff, uh, our trainers, our uh, compliance folks, uh, deputy AD, we've all been on these calls to uh, you know connect with the parents and make and make sure that they understood they understood every step of the way what was happening and why we were doing what we were doing, um, and and then, you know I've had individual meetings on Zoom with players, you know, I've gone through the entire team, uh, even the walk-ons and, and talk uh, and had conversations with those guys. I asked them the same same six questions just to try to get to know them and get some, and some of their feedback. Also, when the players were working out in pods uh, of eight or nine guys in the, in the beginning of this deal, um, I, I met with each pod, you know, initially just to make sure that that we were all on the same page and that we were that the protocols um, that we had in place were were being adhered to and that they were if they had any questions or concerns with our family. So that you know, just being very intentional. It's a lot of it's, it takes a lot of extra time to do that, but it's but it's worth it and that's what needs to be done. Mel, take us a little bit inside your career. Uh, you started off in college, then you went to the NFL for a decade. Um, at what point did you kind of say your, to yourself that maybe you wanted to, to get back into the college game? And uh, you, you obviously came back to work for Nick Saban, which I'm sure was a, a big draw for you. Yes. Uh, in the 2012 season, I was I was with the Jacksonville Jaguars. I was with uh, Mike Malarkey. I was a defensive coordinator and the assistant head coach. And Coach Alvarez, uh, my uh, was the athletic director of Michigan uh, at uh, Wisconsin at the time. I played for Coach Alvarez. So he asked me to look at their head coaching position. I think Brennan just left. And so as I started to prepare for that interview, um, you know, as I was gathering my information, you know, I really, it really dawned on me how much, how much experience I had and, and, and really how I could really benefit, you know, a high school and a college football player, you know, how, how much more that I had to give maybe um, a different type of impact that I can have. And so that's really what kind of planted, planted the seed with me. And um, after the uh, after the 2014 season in Chicago, um, I decided to, uh, to go back to college. And, um, you know, I, I really I have a lot of respect for Nick Saban. I worked. I have worked with him twice before here at Michigan State, and then also at LSU 
And so um, I decided in 2010 to go with Coach Saban as my segue back into college football. We won the national championship. Um, and it's, uh, it's, 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 it's turned out to be a really good decision. It's, it's where my passion is. What have you been doing on your Saturdays, Mel? Are you like me and you're sitting on the couch watching football on Saturday afternoons? Or you, you have to not watch football because it's odd to sit on the couch and watch football? Yeah, well, uh, we, we had practice yesterday yesterday morning, and then in the afternoon I had a couple of events, and then my boys were giving me some scores. Um, my two boys were, were giving me some scores, and I came home. And I caught a I caught a couple of snaps of some games before I, before I cocked out, man. <laughs> but, yeah, it's 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 kind of it's kind of weird uh, watching games, but but not actually you know playing in them at the, you know right now at this time. So I'm looking forward to to getting back on the uh, to getting back on the on the, on the field and coaching in games. But it was like we said all along, you know, it was all about the health and safety of the, the student athletes and the, and the staff and everyone involved. And we all wanted to play you know, that, you know, the, all the, play, the players, the coaches, the staff administration, you know, we all wanted to play. We knew at some play at some time when the time was right, we'd be able to, we'd be able to get back out there. And so I'm just uh, grateful that uh, we're going to have this opportunity in October to get back out there and do what we do. All right, Mel, thanks for uh, joining us this week. Really good conversation, and you know, good luck this season. Obviously, you've dealt with some trying circumstances, but I know you're excited about the opportunity at Michigan State, and, and based on uh, where you've been and, and what you did in one year at Colorado, I think there's a lot of excitement about uh, what you're going to bring to that program. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm very excited and, uh, you know, very motivated. And we're going we're gonna to work as hard as we possibly can and do the best we can to put the best football, field, football team on the field that we can. So thanks again for having me on. You guys, uh, you guys have a great week, and hopefully I'll talk to you soon. All right, Mel, we'll see you down the road. Thanks. thanks yeah, yep, bye-bye. Inside the Amway Coaches Poll from USA Today Sports. Thanks to Mel Tucker for joining us on the Inside the Amway Coaches Poll podcast presented by USA Today Sports. Let's take a look at uh, the games next week, Paul. Auburn, Georgia is the big one. It is so weird because that is a game that just we – our bodies are conditioned to watching in November at the end of the season. For Auburn, it's it's right before the Iron Bowl. It's a game that, like, feels consequential every single year. And to get it in week two, like, I just can't even wrap my mind around that. No, you're totally right. You're absolutely right. And this is a game that should start at 3.30 and then by the late second quarter should be played in darkness. Um, that's how this game should be played. It'll kind of get there. Obviously, it's going to start at 7.30. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's not right. doesn't feel the same. I'm glad we have it rather than not having it at all. But they played one game. It's not the same. But it is a big one. And, you know, the thing about Georgia, we talked a little bit in the opening segment about their quarterback situation. Like, it's very clear at this point that they need JT Daniels. And he is definitely going to be their quarterback when he's healthy. But we also have to remember that he's coming off an ACL injury that is lingering from USC. He transferred. He's been rehabbing. But he's not been cleared for full contact yet. And, you know, even though Kirby Smart said all week long that, 
it was close. It may happen before game time, whatever. I'm not sure that you can just drop in a quarterback coming off an ACL injury who has not had like multiple weeks of full contact practice and play against Auburn. Like, I'm just not sure that's a good idea. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a recipe for success, except when you consider you might have to start Stetson Bennett. And all due respect, like Bennett had former walk-on. Nice story. You got an SEC win against Arkansas. It's great. Everyone loves that. But you're not going to win a national championship right now with Stetson Bennett. So you might not have an option. But, yeah, I mean, it's been a year. It's been 13 months since his knee injury. Um, he spent X number of months in this system, hasn't had any sort of real – serious reps due to injury and a, and a, and a weird off season said one year starting experience out West. You know, I just, I, I don't know if he, he would be an upgrade. You would think, I just don't know why, like you put Daniels in it and you're like, all right, now they can win the national championship. He's got a ton to prove. This offense has a ton to prove. Well, and look, that's why I was a little confused about what Georgia did in the second quarter when they pulled Juan Mathis and they play Stetson Bennett. I mean, I understand from the Kirby Smart mentality, you're doing what you feel like you need to do to win the game. Mathis is struggling. As he said afterwards, it's not all his fault. There were plenty of other breakdowns. But just the way I think about that situation is, if you started Mathis, then you felt coming out of camp like he was your best quarterback. So – even though the game was not going the way you wanted it to go early, I just sort of wonder why you weren't investing those snaps in him. I mean, you're playing Arkansas, for goodness sakes. I know that it felt like it was dangerous early and Arkansas was playing well and their defense was uh, had some juice. But you should have been able to win that game regardless of who was playing quarterback. I think it just – the length of the game would have eventually favored Georgia and Mathis maybe could have played through some of those mistakes. So to me, like Kirby's almost sort of boxed himself into starting Stetson Bennett next week. And I'm not sure you can get away with starting Stetson Bennett against Auburn. That's a good point. Playing Mathis for the entirety of the Arkansas game had long-term benefits. That's what I, that's how I viewed it. Yeah. Right. No question about it. At the very least, Smart may be able to say, hey, I can present Auburn with the with two different looks and potentially three different quarterbacks to prepare for. That's an advantage. I don't think Auburn is necessarily shaking in their boots at the idea of playing any of the three at this point, but at least it gives Georgia options. But, yeah, I mean, you play Mathis the rest of that game. It's not pretty. It wasn't pretty anyway. But at least you give him some reps, you put him into a high-pressure situation, you see how he responds, and you move forward, knowing that Daniels at some point will be available. Um, I don't know who I'm going to pick on Saturday. I think i got a couple days to figure it out. But this situation at Georgia for quarterback, it's gone from having like this wealth of riches a month ago to being a high-pressure situation for Kirby because he's had QBs. He's had QBs, five-star QBs his entire tenure, and now he might not have a QB that's really reliable. Do we need to spend any time on A&M Alabama? Well, tell me how you think A&M wins. Does that mean Alabama gets lost? It's at home. Their boss is going to know how to get there. That's really the best shot. I mean, I don't see anything from A&M last week or from Saturday. That makes me think that 
that team can beat Alabama. No, you're right. I mean, there's – yeah. Uh, it, this is a game that almost every single year feels like it gets hyped up beyond belief uh, because uh, A&M usually, like, plays a soft schedule early, uh, although they, they have played Clemson non-conference recently. But, it yeah, Alabama's never had any problem – with A&M other than the, the Manziel year. Like, it's just not been a competitive series. So why would it be now? Yeah, it's gotten uglier since Manziel left. Remember, remember they had, the, obviously, the Manziel win. They had a classic the next year at A&M, and then since then it's been, it, it's been bad. I want to see the spread on this game. It's not out. So I don't know what it's going to be. I'm guessing it's going to be, I don't know, 12 and a half to 15 would be my guess, maybe, maybe more. But, yeah, this one's going to favor Alabama – Barring turnovers, I think A&M is probably going to head for a loss. I would uh, concur with that. Um, a game that interests me to just based on what happened last week is Texas TCU. So without looking it up, Paul, since TCU yeah. got to the Big 12 in 2012, they have played Texas eight times. How many of those has TCU won? I think they've won five. They've won six. Six, okay. Six yeah, this is a this is a series um, that TCU has won. TCU has – this is disrespectful to say. I'm just not sure if the other – what other phrases. Like a little bit of a little brother syndrome. I know that's cruel. It's not quite that. What's another word I could use? But they have that with Texas. Yeah, they have a chip on their shoulder. Chip on their shoulder. Much Patterson. Way to say. And, and, and the Patterson, Patterson is- in particular. Yeah. In particular. No doubt about it. Big time. So they take this series – very seriously, um, as they should. But, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's a contributor for why they play so well against Texas. And they, they could win on Saturday. They, they're going to get their QB back. Um, they could easily win on Saturday in, a, at, in Austin. Yeah, I think the big concern for TCU coming out of their first game is, is their defense. Iowa State mm-hmm. uh, scored 37, and, and a lot of that was just big plays. Like, they just gave up too many big plays. Uh, but but TCU did score 34, and, and look, I mean, they could have won, maybe should have won that game. They just didn't get the job done. Um, I don't really know where TCU is as a program right now just because they're coming off two pretty, pretty mediocre years by TCU standards. But I think this is kind of an immediate opportunity for them. Uh, if they do what they always seem to do against Texas, which is rise to the occasion, I think they can – sort of get in the mix and, and maybe even fashion themselves as a little bit of a Big 12 contender, just sort of given the up-in-the-air up, up in the air nature of that whole thing. Yeah, totally. That's a good point. I mean, if they win this game, um, all bets are off in the Big 12. TCU could win it as well as anyone. Iowa State could put themselves in position that obviously UT and OU could still be there. Um, yeah, the TCU giving up big plays, That's I know how Patterson's going to feel about that. Their, their pass defense is ahead of the game right now compared to how they're, they're going to stop the run. Um, but if they don't, easiest way to let Texas beat you is to give up, you know, big plays. And they have the opportunity to do that. So TCU needs to button it up because I don't think they want to get into a shootout with Texas where it's like it was this past weekend on Lubbock. There are not necessarily a ton of uh, blockbuster matchups on the weekend, but, but one that uh, I, I will certainly be watching is SMU Memphis. How about that? Memphis that, – that, by the way, this was the game day game last year. This was a game mm-hmm. uh, that, that featured two teams the, – the two best teams from, from the AAC West division. And 
SMU's 3-0, Memphis is 1-0, and, and there's an air of mystery around Memphis because they uh, have not played in, in, a, in a while. They, they've had COVID issues. But um, you want to talk about just pure entertainment. That has been one of the most entertaining series of the last three, four years. Yeah, it, it should be a fun one. I give SMU an advantage because of what you mentioned. I mean, it's going to be a month since the last time Memphis played. I think we've re- Imagine what that win meant against Arkansas State after Arkansas State beat Kansas State. I think we give it a little more credit. But SMU's been rolling. Um, they're in a routine and a rhythm. They're at home. Um, I give SMU an edge here. And, and if they win this game, you've got to put SMU in your top 25 because they'll be 4-0, one of the few 4-0 teams in the country. And this will be really a not a program-changing win for Sonny Dykes because he's got this thing on the up and up as it is, but it'd be a, a huge win in 2020 for the Mustangs to beat Memphis and clearly would make SMU um, right like 2A behind Cincinnati and uh, UCF in the American. Yeah, Memphis is uh, 24 this week. So uh, that, that's, I think, a really um... – it's, it, it's a good showcase game for, for the AAC. All right, let's jump over to uh, the ACC. And not a great slate of games, frankly, in the ACC, but uh, Virginia goes to Clemson. That is a rematch of the uh, ACC championship game last year, such as, as it was. But uh, Virginia actually, to me, was pretty impressive. Uh, a little bit of a slow start against Duke. Uh, but it was their first game. They had openers that were delayed by COVID and, and they came out uh, and, and pretty much handled their business 38 to 20. Um, you know, I, I don't know what exactly it means because you know, they're, they're, they've got a new quarterback. It's, it's a little bit different looking offense for Virginia and, and they're obviously playing uh, against an outstanding Clemson team. But um, you know, I think in that, in that coastal division, even though they don't have divisions this year, Virginia's just an intriguing program to me right now because I thought they were really competitive last year, and I, I just think Mendenhall has has them pointing in absolutely the right direction, and I do think they're a program that, that over time you do have to take seriously. Oh, yeah, for sure. He's such a good coach. Really? And he did it the right way, and he really – yeah, he took no shortcuts um, at UVA, none, and he built it well enough where you lose a guy like Perkins who is everything on their offense. You bring in Brennan Armstrong and at least through a game, it, it's been tweaked and altered to meet his personnel and the results are good. They're going to get crushed by Clemson. Um, it's not a fair matchup. Clemson is, is super good, but yeah, it's good to, to highlight Virginia for a sec because um, they're built the right way. And I think they're built to last. And I don't think they're ever going to be a team that's like, winning the ACC or playing for a championship, obviously, but they could put themselves in a spot where every couple years they're in that championship game, they're in a bowl game every year, and, and they're in the mix for the New Year's Six. And that's a, that's a really good achievement for Mendenhall. You are sure that they're going to get crushed? I think so. I think Clemson's super good. They've got some kids on the defensive front, Brzee and Murphy, who are just, like, unfair. They're playing, like, 25-year-olds already. So it's not a good matchup for anybody in the ACC, except maybe, maybe Notre Dame. Clemson's going to roll over everybody else. All right, we'll revisit that next week. Um, <laughs> another sort of oddity of the schedule, and again, this is not a weekend with a ton of just high-profile matchups, but we've got Navy, Air Force. Air Force is playing, even though the Mountain West Conference is not going to start – for an, another month, 
essentially. Uh, they just voted to resume their season on, on Friday. And so I, who knows like what air force is or what they've been doing. Uh, they've got guys who have, you know, sort of had to opt out for various reasons. Um, Navy had the big comeback against Tulane. They didn't play this past weekend. I, I'm going to be watching that game just for the sort of sheer like mystery of it. I, yeah. Because I, I just can't like think of a s- situation where like air force is going to play this game. They have not played up until now. They're going to play this game and then they're not going to play again for a while. Yeah. I know that, that some people at Navy aren't uh, ecstatic about the idea that they've had to play two games and prep for others. Meanwhile, air force has just been like, let's get ready for Navy. Let's spend the next, like the last month getting ready for Navy. So uh, yeah, they air a mystery about air force, but there's not that much about Navy because troll Calhoun has done two things the last month. That's prep for Navy until weird stories about Vietnam. That's all he's done for the last month. So no, nobody in college ready. football has more weird stories than Troy Calhoun. Just, he's just pulled the string and let it roll. Um, you never know what's going to come out. It's going to be odd. Yeah. I'm going to watch that game. I think that, I don't want to be a Navy apologist or an army apologist. If army was playing in this game, um, this year's commander in chief's trophy race has some like weird quirks to it. If I was Navy and air force, like won this game and went on to win the CIC, I would like roll my eyes a bit because it's not fair that air force has had a month plus to get ready for this specific game while Navy has been prepping for other things. Let's just say a quick word about Pittsburgh. We have not talked about Pittsburgh at all on this podcast. I want to say before you go forward, we haven't talked about Pittsburgh. I'm a charter member of the Pittsburgh bandwagon. I don't say this publicly. I don't really say a whole lot of things publicly. I just want everyone to know other people will get on it now and they'll say, Oh, Pitt, Pitt, four and Pitt, top 25 Pitt. Here we go. Here we go. Like I'm talking January. I was on the pit bandwagon. So please, I'm sorry to oh, interrupt. Go ahead. No, this exactly leads into where I'm going. They, they play NC state at home. Uh, they should be four and zero coming out of that game. Then they've got to go to Boston college again, a game pit should win five and zero before they would go to Miami in what is now shaping up on October 17th to be like a really significant game. And I will admit, I've not watched pit at all yet this year and and maybe i should because you know from the comments i saw coming out of their game against louisville on saturday it sounds like their defensive line is really really good yeah they've got a really good defense and i think they've known since the beginning of the offseason that this defense is going to be filthy and they've lost their all-america defensive linemen but they still got enough pieces i'll tell you what Pitt's looked like the last two weeks like close your eyes and just picture what Pitt has looked like under narduzzi it's that it's like kind of you're pulling teeth on offense. You're getting a little bit lucky in terms of turnovers. You're like tackling. Well, you're, you're defending the, it's just like a very Narduzzi pit team, but they're winning. And like you said, these are two winnable games ahead. They can be five and oh, they're not going to go 10 and oh, but this team could be eight and two at the end of things. If to go eight and two, cause they got Miami, Notre Dame tech, Virginia tech and Clemson as their big ones. You got to split those. I could see it. Eight and two is the ceiling, but Pitt is capable of doing that under Narduzzi. All right, let's end the podcast today somewhat where we started. Does Florida State need to be on upset alert against Jacksonville State? 
you know, you you're one step ahead of me because I was just looking at what Jacksonville State was looking like this year because haven't played. Thought had crossed my mind. Yeah, I was thinking like heading in, like what our expectations were last year. Six and six. Um, hey, they beat Eastern Washington last year. They had a bad losing streak to end of the year. I don't know anything about Jacksonville State except yes, yes. Jacksonville State will put Florida State on upset alert. Hey, didn't Jacksonville State almost beat someone a few years back? I well, they like- have been a very competitive FCS program, and they play a lot of, like, the old misses of the world, and, and they, they usually, you know, hang in there for a while. It might have even been old Miss. I'd have to go look it up. I'm going to look it up right now because, yeah, but – They've been very um, good in that, in that, in that realm of, of the non-conference games where, you know, they, they, will, they will play competitively for a while, and then they'll go back to FCS, and, and they win a bunch of games. Like, that's kind of what they've been. Oh, they lost to Auburn in overtime back in 2015. That's what it was, yep. Yep, I remember that. I remember that that Auburn team. Um, So, yeah, I think Florida State could play um, Jacksonville State High School and we'll put them on upset alert. There's nothing about um, Florida State right now that makes me think that they're good, that they're going to get better in six days. And uh, they could lose to anybody at any time, anywhere. They could lose to the USA Today team, conceivably, if we had a week to get ready. Yeah, now I remember uh, when I associate them with Ole Miss, it's because they actually beat Ole Miss, but it was way back in 2010, uh, and that was kind of the game that sealed Houston Nuts' fate as the Ole Miss coach. And so that was what was sticking in my mind when I associate Jacksonville State with Ole Miss. Uh, that was the uh, the Jeremiah, Jeremiah Masola. Yeah. Masoli, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, I remember very well. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Ten years. So if you're Florida State, yeah, you definitely uh, want to take these guys seriously. And, uh, yeah, don't, don't lose that one. No, I'd suggest you, uh, I suggest you win. You can catch that on ESPN three, by the way, if you're a Florida state fan, ESPN three. So I hope you have internet, good internet access, Florida state on ESPN three, the, the rare four o'clock kickoff on ESPN three for Florida state for Owen two Florida state. That's tough. Well, I would say that we probably cannot reasonably expect a weekend as exciting as the one we just had. I don't know if we're that lucky, but uh, we can always hope. So hope everybody has a great week and we enjoyed college football. We're going to keep enjoying college football. Thanks to Mel Tucker for coming on the podcast today. Thanks to you all for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast, leave a comment, leave a review. It helps us boost in the ratings and uh, certainly spread the word to all your friends. For Paul Meyerberg, I am Dan Walken. This has been the Inside the Amway Coaches Poll podcast from USA Today Sports. We'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to Inside the Amway Coaches Poll from USA Today Sports. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Repeated and daily training and performance takes its toll on our muscles. Essential amino acids play many critical roles in your body and have been found to help build and preserve lean muscle mass. Traditionally, protein powders have been used to deliver essential amino acids that our muscles need, but they don't do that effectively, especially as we get older. Over 30 years of research into maintaining muscle mass and muscle protein synthesis led to a breakthrough in essential amino acid technology. This research led to the optimal blend of all nine essential amino acids to build lean muscle when used in combination with a healthy diet and regular strength training. Supporting that muscle recovery is necessary for athletes to maximize their performance. Excess Muscle Multiplier contains this optimal blend of all nine essential amino acids exclusively. Whether you're an athlete like myself, a weekend warrior, or someone trying to get fit, 
Muscle Multiplier can help you build and maintain that lean muscle mass when combined with strength training and healthy eating. I personally recommend using Excess Muscle Multiplier before, during, and after workouts to really help those muscles recover and stay strong. For more information, go to amway.com and search Muscle Multiplier. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, and they are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.